Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Roth, but my friends call me the Booby Docs, my popular social media account where I talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and fun way. I'm a board-certified radiologist who specializes in breast imaging and image-guided procedures. I'm also a 40-something Ashkenazi Jewish woman with a strong family history of breast cancer and BRCA, so I know a thing or two about breast cancer. And this is my podcast, The Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, this podcast is for you. Each episode, I sit down with top breast cancer experts, thrivers, providers, and those that love them to bring you the breast information. So get ready to learn, laugh, and let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please refer to your doctor with any symptoms or concerns you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. Today, I am joined by breast surgical oncologist and plastic surgeon, Dr. Ann Pellet. After her own breast cancer diagnosis at age 37, despite being a vegan marathon runner, she used her own experience to develop the sensation-preserving mastectomy with her husband, and she's here to tell us all about it. Dr. Pellet, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Oh, well, thank you. I love that you do this. This is incredible. So thank you. Thank you for having me. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I am Ann Pellet. I am a dual-trained breast cancer surgeon and plastic surgeon in San Francisco. And actually, for me, a lot of reason that I end up uh, loving to get to talk on a great podcast like this is because I'm actually a breast cancer survivor myself. I was diagnosed in 2017. I had already started my practice at that point. And I actually come from a, a family of breast oncologists. So my dad is a medical oncologist. My mom and sister are radiation oncologists. Just everyone does breast cancer. And so it was actually just such a crazy thing to have gotten diagnosed out of nowhere at 37. Um, but it is something that I now love talking about and sharing my story and trying to figure out how to help others get better care as a result. So it's been definitely a, a lemonade out of lemons in many ways. I have so many questions. <laughs> we just, I didn't realize your whole family was like breast cancer specialists. I know, it's crazy. Um, well, you had the best resources around at the time. So, so how, how were you diagnosed? You were 37. Did you feel a lump? I did. You know, I, I really was proud of myself, actually, because as physicians, I feel like we don't do a great job taking care of ourselves sometimes. And I had felt a lump and I just assumed it was going to be a cyst. I think, you know, you and I see this all the time, people who are mm-hmm. completely healthy. I was a vegetarian triathlete. I had no family history. I felt this lump and I thought, OK, it's going to be a breast cyst going to go away. And then it hadn't gone away in two weeks. And I said, you know, this is what I tell my patients, don't be home worrying, get it checked out. And I just, oh my gosh, the morning, I was about to scrub into a double mastectomy when the pathologist called me the next day with my pathology. And I just, I mean, that feeling when you told me it was invasive cancer. So, um, yeah, totally. I mean, but like everyone we see, you know, they're just, the shock is real. And are you sure that's my pathology? But, um, honestly, after that first call, I really do feel like Every piece of news after that actually was as good as it could have been. But that, that first oh my call God. <laughs> hits you so hard. I can't even imagine. Uh, so what did your treatment look like? And walk me through that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And so um, 
being diagnosed so young, of course, I kind of got all the possible things, which was great to think about how to help me with options. So um, we did genetic testing that actually came back negative, um, which was great for my family uh, and, and just not having to worry about some of those other parts of it. Then I did uh, oncotype testing. So for people who might not know listening, uh, I'm a huge proponent of something called genomic testing, which is basically, in my mind, really transformed how we think about care. So at 37, 10 years ago, 100% of the time, I would have been offered chemotherapy because I was so young. But what's amazing now is we can do these tests of your tumor and actually find out whether or not you really do need chemotherapy or not, mm -hmm. which is pretty incredible. Um, and mine came back low. So, um, so no I chemo. did not do chemotherapy yeah. first, which was great. Mm -hmm. I actually thought really long and hard. It was uh, incredibly challenging in ways that surprise me. I'm a breast cancer and reconstructive surgeon. I do this every day and it was right. so hard to make a surgical decision. Um, but ultimately I decided to do a lumpectomy. I had an oncoplastic reconstruction, um, which I'm a big proponent of, um, and then went on to radiation. And I've been on tamoxifen for almost five years now. Um, and I apparently get to stop in May, which is a little bit scary, but <laughs> we'll, get, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But according to all my testing, I get to stop in May. So what you mentioned a lot of things. So you mentioned you had a lumpectomy with oncoplastic reconstruction. So what is that for the listeners? Yeah, for sure. So um, a lot of people think, okay, post mastectomy, we can have lots of different reconstruction options. And we talk about those a lot, which is fantastic. But many people don't know that at the time of lumpectomy, you should also be asking about reconstruction. And that's because with a standard lumpectomy, we put a big cut over your tumor, take it out, leave a hole, it fills up with fluid. And then you go into radiation and over time that collapses. And so people get this big divot and dent. And a lot of times people think, oh, I just want the cancer out. You know, I don't care about the cosmetics. I don't care about my scar. But wonderfully, we treat breast cancer so well that those are people that are going to be looking at their scar every single day, day in and day out and have that reminder. So there are different ways that you can actually reshape the area where the lumpectomy was taken out um, so that people look better and they get to look like themselves again. Is that something you have to do at the time of lumpectomy? Ideally, you do it at the time of lumpectomy because then mm -hmm. your tissues are all set up before you go on to radiation. However, if you haven't had it and you've gone through radiation, we actually do have some really great options for reconstructing that space in the future. So this is a radiologist and me speaking, but what if you <laughs> end up coming, what if you end up having positive margins with that lumpectomy? Yeah, such a great question. So um, we actually mark out the cavity when we take out the cancer. And so if for some reason you do have positive margins, you can actually know where you were, go in, clean up the margins that you need, and then reclose the space again. Yeah, I think that's an important aspect because I've seen oncoplastic reconstruction done and without markers, and it's you're just disoriented. There's no landmarks. Yeah, you're totally right. And I think from a radiology mm -hmm. standpoint, one of the things we love to do is mark the space ideally with something that you can see in the future. You know, someone once said, oh, it's a GPS for, you know, area for your breast cancer. But it is really nice, I think, as patients for us to feel I have one of those personally. I love that my radiologist, when I do my follow-up mammograms, can show me that's exactly where your cancer was. Look, it looks perfect. And so I love marking the cavity for that reason, too. That makes sense. Um, okay, so what made you choose lumpectomy as a patient going through this? So one of the things uh, I was so struck by by getting diagnosed was how incredibly disruptive it is to get a cancer diagnosis and probably any major health issue. But, you know, I had I have three little kids. I had teaching plans. Of course, I had surgery. We had a trip to Hawaii, you know, so many, so many things. And this is the same, right, we see with our patients all the time. And so for me, I was trying to think about in the short and long term, 
what is going to be the thing that fits best with my goals? Um, I'm incredibly active. I work out every day. Um, and I was thinking, you know, how can I get back to that quickly? How can I get back to my family? How can I try to do this teaching thing that I'm planning on doing 10 days after my surgery? And so I thought a lot. And from a life standpoint, I thought a lumpectomy was going to be a better choice. But honestly, a lot of the major driving factor, which is something that's transformed kind of how we practice now, is the thought of losing sensation in my chest if I had mastectomies. And I have a good friend of mine who is also a physician who got diagnosed a year or two before me, and she puts on a sports bra and doesn't know it's on. And I just felt like not for anyone, but certainly at 37, I just I couldn't wrap my brain around it. I thought, you know, maybe I'll have a lumpectomy now and in five years it'll be too much to go through screening. But at that moment, I just couldn't do it. So for me, I know it was the right decision um, every single day, but it was definitely that full chest numbness. I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Yes. So that is a great transition to my next point, which is that you, you worked with your husband, Dr. Ziv Peled, to, uh, who's a peripheral nerve and plastic surgeon, to create a sensation-preserving mastectomy. How did you do that, and why was that important for you and the community? I always laugh when I tell people uh, this story that my husband and I need better dinner table conversations, because to be honest, we actually really talked about it at home together. And he watched me struggle through my decision making. We talked about sensation. And what's pretty amazing is we reconstruct nerves all over the rest of the body. And so the thought was, well, we can reconstruct nerves everywhere else. We can avoid injuring nerves. Um, His job when he's not doing breast surgery with me is to fix nerves that have been injured. Um, And so the thought was, well, can we do mastectomies in a way where we try not to injure nerves? And can we use newer techniques and technologies for reconstructing the ones that we have to repair? So actually, I had my surgery in January 2018, and we did our first sensation-preserving mastectomy in February 2018. Um, so in that, wow. <laughs> and it was really amazing. It was like, you I came up with it in like five weeks? We did. Like, <laughs> you know, and then it was actually perfect time. We had a patient of ours who was really what? concerned about loss of sensation going through mastectomy. So we told her, we have this approach. We're going to try it with you. Um, and it worked really well. And we kind of haven't looked back. I think we're at almost 700 mastectomies um, with this approach at this point, almost five years later. Wow. So I didn't even, a lot of people probably don't realize that you lose, what sensation do you have after a normal mastectomy? Yeah, it's one of the things that honestly just breaks my heart that a lot of people don't know. Um, And so I talk all the time about it. I love that my patients are big advocates for the fact that you lose sensation and it really is incredibly variable. So that's the thing that's kind of in my mind sort of scary about it is we can't image nerves very well before surgery. We don't know kind of what's going to get kept and what's not. And some people do get some sensation back. But there are lots of people who literally will tell you they feel numb from, honestly, their collarbones up to the top of their abdomen, basically. It's this entire swath of of their chest that's incredibly numb. Um, And so for many people, it can be, as you can imagine, incredibly disorienting to have this whole part of your body numb. But the other problem that people don't realize is that being numb can also lead to different kinds of injuries. So I saw a patient recently who burned herself with a curling iron and she didn't know, right? Because her chest was numb. And so we see electric blanket injuries, other things, and that can have really devastating consequences depending on your reconstruction. Is that the, is that for breast cancer patients or even if you have a prophylactic mastectomy that you have no sensation? Yeah, it's for both. So basically, it's a mastectomy technique issue. So with mm-hmm. our standard mastectomies, um, a lot of times the way that we do the, the dissection to take the breast tissue off, it just cuts through a lot of nerves. And it turns out you can actually keep them safely and not all of them. So mm-hmm. many people's nerves run right through your breast tissue. 
So we can't save those because we couldn't do our mastectomy well. But a lot of the nerves actually run on the edge of the breast. And so it's just a question of being careful, making sure that you kind of come around the edge of the tissue and don't go out into outside the breast. Um, but we've, we've now been teaching, we teach virtually on webinars and other things, but we actually have teams of surgeons come to our OR um, wow. much of the time. And when they come, which I love, is that um, they leave saying, hey, this is something we could we could do tomorrow. We could start tomorrow. And I get the loveliest messages. I had one from a patient recently on Instagram whose team trained with us mm-hmm. and they did their first sensation-preserving mastectomy and she was their first patient. Wow. And it was just the loveliest message of sort of her gratitude about this. And it's it's been so fun to see people get so excited about it and then take it back to their communities. So what, what sensation does someone after this procedure have? Like full. So honestly, we have some patients who tell us they feel exactly the same way wow. that they do before. I would say um, we, when we look at our data, it's about 85 to 90% of people get back most, if not all, their sensation. Um, and many people, like nipples respond to temperature, to touch. They feel everything. It just may be a little muted from before. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so you guys were the first ones to really publish about this, right? And yeah, we were. And there, there's some other groups that are doing it now, which is really fun. And on the, we're all going to have more data out there to get yeah. more support for it. So how widely available is this now? You know, someone asked me the other day why it's taking so long. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I've also been kind of surprised um, that the uptick hasn't been faster. There are certainly a few other big centers that are doing this a lot. And mm-hmm. then other places are slowly starting, but it's happening. You know, I think now that in probably many large, large centers in this country, this is a possibility that they're starting. So um, I think we will get there. But what's what's so amazing is patients are asking for it. And so, you know, if you're someone listening to this, and you think, well, I shouldn't, I don't want to ask for it, or my team doesn't do it. It turns out that if all of us, you know, as patients and advocates, if we ask for things that our surgeons or doctors don't offer, oftentimes, that's what drives it. You know, it's not my standing out there talking about the importance. It's Mm -hmm. actually people seeing their own patients asking for it. Right. A hundred percent. And you said it's not that hard to learn and you're teaching it. So, so, so what is the technique? Like, how are you avoiding the nerves in real time? So basically the nerves along the middle of the breast, um, those actually are relatively straightforward to avoid during a mastectomy. If you're just careful with those sort of the blood supply and the breast borders, the ones on the outside of the breast are a little trickier. And so you have to be really careful when you're coming around the outside of the breast that you look for them. Um, my husband is a nerve surgeon. This is what he does day in and day out. And so he'll actually loop, look with something called loops. They're almost like magnifying glasses that you wear in the OR. He'll look for them and then try not to injure them. But then the final thing that we do is we actually will find nerves when we're taking the mastectomy, uh, the breast tissue off of the chest. We find the nerves coming through that tissue. We get what we can from them and then we actually reconstruct them uh, during the same surgery. So we actually connect those nerves to nerves under the nipple using some kind of nerve graft. And so what happens is people's own nerve over the next three, six, 12 months actually grows through that nerve graft up to the nipple and then the sensation spreads out. You mentioned this previously, but what is the name of the magnifying glass that you wear? Oh, they're called loops. Oh, I think you said boops. And I was like, boop. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been perfect. That's right. I wish I oh, I wish that's that. what they were called. Yeah. That would be way better. <laughs> totally. Wait, so I have a question. If somebody had a routine mastectomy and no longer has sensation, is there anything that they could, you guys could do to restore sensation? 
Yeah, so they have actually, the plastic surgery community at large has been doing reconstruction with flap reconstruction and neuro reconstruction actually for decades. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know. It's been since the late 1990s. So if you've had a mastectomy in the past, you're up for having a flap reconstruction. That's a good fit for you. They can actually bring nerves up with the flap, usually from the belly, something called a DIEP flap, and connect nerves to the chest. If you've had implants, it's a little bit trickier. Um, and that's because um, basically you don't have the nerve to bring up with an implant, but we do and are able to go look in the chest, see if we can find nerves and then try to reconnect them if we see them. So basically what we're telling people is that's kind of a newer technique. We don't have as much data as we do on the primary repair, mm -hmm. but we've been doing it now and it's going really well. So my hope is that's kind of the next frontier is let's get in people who maybe need to come back to have their implants switched out, another revision, and let's try to reconstruct nerves at that time. Love it. So, um, so you, you're interesting because you do the mastectomy and the reconstruction. Most people just do one or the other, right? Yes. What, what, how did that come about? You just loved it all? <laughs> I kind of did just love it all. Well, with my, with my family all being breast cancer mm -hmm. physicians, I actually started doing breast cancer research when I was 15 at yes. my dad's hospital growing up. And I fell in love with plastic surgery. I did my residency, but during my training, I actually um, ended up doing two years of combination breast cancer and breast reconstruction research, um, had an amazing breast surgery mentor. And when I was thinking about what to do for my fellowship, she said, you know, you love taking care of patients with breast cancer. Why don't you do a breast surgical oncology fellowship? Um, which isn't like you mentioned the usual track. It's usually from general surgery. Yeah. But for me, it was such a perfect fit. And yeah. honestly, this is how people are trained in Europe. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, it makes sense to me to have it be the same person thinking about your reconstructive outcome and your oncologic outcome. It totally makes sense. So do you do that all? Like, do you do it at the same time? Is it a staged approach or it depends? We try to do it almost always at the same time. Yeah. So I would say about 80% of my practice is either mastectomies with immediate reconstruction or aesthetic flat closure if people don't want reconstruction or lumpectomies with some kind of oncoplastic reconstruction. Um, we do a lot of People who come in, they've been newly diagnosed with a small cancer and they get to have the breast reduction or breast lift they've always wanted, mm -hmm. but never would have done electively. And that's one of kind of our favorite silver linings to offer people is that combination in that way. Definitely. Do you offer implant reconstruction too? I do. Yeah. So we do primarily implant reconstruction at this point, actually. Did your perspective change at all when you became, when you became a patient as, as a doctor? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's every day. The fact that I went through this plays a role in my life in different ways. Um, I think the main thing is trying to really get to know my patients and what this means for them, because mm -hmm. everyone's different, you know, and the impact that this is going to have, the surgical choices you make, this impacts all the rest of your life. And so when I give talks to other physicians about sort of how to do what's something called shared decision making, which is where you really sit with your patient, you think about what do they want? It's not the opposite of paternalistic, you know, how can mm -hmm. we come together to come up with a treatment plan? I felt like I was doing that okay before this, but now like I know exactly what it's gonna be like for you to think about recovering from a flap or what it's gonna be like to have to go get MRIs every year. And so I, for me, it's really transformed that. And honestly, it's really rewarding. Mm -hmm. You know, like I kind of love those moments where I get to sit and be like, tell me, what are you scared about? What worries you? What are you dreading about recovery? What's your support system like? So um, I don't know, at this point, I actually feel like that does feel like a bit of a gift having gone through all of this to get those kind of deep relationships with the people I get to take care of. Yeah, it definitely gives you perspective. And like, you could put yourself in their shoes. 
Um, very quickly. Your patients are so lucky to have you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I really do feel lucky to have them actually. In all honesty, it's just such a joy to get to be part of a journey. I mean, you know the same thing, right? It's a really incredibly challenging time in people's lives, but you get to be there with it. And you get to see the Mm -hmm. people on the other side who get that first normal mammogram. And those feelings are amazing. I totally agree. I'm always like, next time at Wegmans. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's my closing one. That is awesome. So changing topics a little bit, but what was Mm -hmm. it like to lead the self-breast exam recently on Good Morning America with the Breasties? Oh my gosh, it was such an amazing experience. Oh I really, looking back, it still feels like this just incredible, <laughs> incredible moment. When we talk with the Breasties founders uh-huh. about getting on and would I want to do it, you know, instantly, yes, 100%. But I really didn't realize when I said yes to it, that this was the first time someone had actually done like the real breast exam. And I'm talking to the founders yeah. about, oh, and you know, we'll kind of do it. And they're like, oh, no, we are doing Sorry, breast exam on <laughs> national television. Here is a recent clip from Good Morning America where Dr. Paled led the self-breast exam with the rest of the breasties on national TV. Dr. Paled, you're a surgeon, also a breast cancer survivor. When we talk about early detection, you want to focus on the importance of self-exams. It's something we can all do. For sure. And it's so important that we do breast self-exams because we need to know our normal. Because you don't know if you have a change if you don't know what your baseline is. And certainly we know about 40% of breast cancers are actually found with lumps. And it's so important for early detection, better outcomes. And personally, I was so glad I was doing breast self-exams because I found my own lump. And that's true for many of our breasties here. And a lot of us were so young, we weren't recommended to get screening mammograms yet. So it's so key we know how to do a good exam. I told you when I had my... my, radiologist she actually took my hand and she goes you never felt this and the truth was I didn't because I had never done a, a breast self exam so you're going to show us how we're going to show you how to do it <laughs> so one of the things that's so important we're all in clothes um, but it's really important when you do this to not have any clothes on and one of the things I tell people is try to do it if you can every month same time every month so the first thing you want to do is actually look at your breast so you want to look in the mirror put your hands on your hips and actually look do you see any changes in your breast how they look any indentations do the nipple look different next you want to actually move into the exam itself so you can do this in the shower, you can do it lying in bed. You want to put one hand up over your head, and then you want to take the pads of your fingers here, the three middle fingers, and you want to put different levels of pressure. So I like to talk about using a star. So you start on the sides, you're going to come in towards the middle of the breast, go down and about, and just make sure that you're getting all the different parts of the breast. Then you actually want to go up underneath here, feel in your armpit, see if you see any lumps, and then finally get here by your clavicle, by your collarbone. Really important to know that breast self-exams are not a substitute for imaging. So even though it's incredibly important, you still, like you did, want to go in and get your mammograms, get your MRIs. And if you see something, you go to your doctor directly. Thank you all for being with us and to show everyone what we can do. To It's very much about empowerment and early detection. What was so awesome was I had patients, I had people being like, I didn't even know how to do a breast self-exam well. And I don't know about you, but I kind of take for granted because I do them all the time that people know how to do breast self-exam, but they really don't. So that was the other really fun part about it was people actually learned how to do that. 100%. I mean, I didn't really learn how to do a right self-breast exam until I started the booby docs and started promoting Feel It on the First because I really think there is a role for the self-breast exam. And I want to ask you your feelings about that after. But yeah, like you're not trained on it. And a lot of, so it is important to have that good training. Um, I, it was I was cheering you on so loud from the from the couch when you guys you rocked it and it was so empowering to see all the breasties come out in time. Uh, thank you. 
It's such, I, I have to say that working with that, with the breasties has really actually been one of the, my most favorite things that I've done in terms of this role, because I think, you know, just from inspiration, community, everything that they add, I get, they just blow me away every time. So to get to be a part of it with them specifically, it was literally a dream. I, I'm obsessed with the breasties too. Like I spoke <laughs> with Allie. I like, I just, I'm big fan girls and I just, I feel like I love what they do. Like, I don't have breast cancer, but I'm a breast cancer supporter. Like, let's move mountains. Oh, oh, totally. And that's what it's all about, right? I mean, that's what I think that community, which I love, is like, it's so inclusive. Like, you can, wherever you are, if you're a person that cares about supporting some breast cancer, you're in. And I love that. But yeah, the fangirl is totally me. When they first asked me to get involved, I told my husband, I was like, seriously. I think they say (laughs) worst club best members. that's the best. Exactly that's what the we said. Yep. <laughs> um, so talking about the self-breast exam, I want to ask you about that. Do you support the self-breast yes. exam? Clearly. No, I love this because I want to talk to you about yeah. this too, because I feel like when I give talks, it's this, you know, we all talk about mammograms save lives, right? We all say that, we use that, we believe that. And yes. then self-breast exams seem so complicated and I get it. But for instance, when I was on GMA and we asked of the eight of us who were up there, half of us had found breast lumps ourselves because we weren't getting screening yet. Right. And so I guess for me, it just feels like, why wouldn't you want to know your baseline and know your normal, even if on a population level, somehow that's not going to change outcomes, but I think it has to change outcomes, right? Like I would never have gotten screened otherwise. So back in 2015, the American Cancer Society no longer recommends a self-breast exam for average risk women. Okay, so there's a, that's a big statement. So one, you have to know your average risk. Like, are we going to start, you know, and really there's no harm. Like, they, they, they think, like, what is the harm of your body getting to know your breath? It makes sense. Like, I think it's become a little politicized. I hate to say that. But, um, I, you know, I, I, I make, I, I, I kind of tweet the American Cancer Society all the time. Like, it just doesn't make sense. 80% of women under the age of 40 find their breast, their breast cancers themselves. You know, and over 13,000 women will be diagnosed under the age of 40 each year. So how could you, how else would they find their breast cancer? No, I'm so glad you say that because I do feel like there's this tension in ways that I don't really understand. I mean, I think you put it so perfectly. There's no downside to doing breast health exams. I mean, I tell my patients, you know, don't be home worrying. I would happily stay late add on people over lunch. If I had everyone who has a breast lump that they're worried about wanted to come in and see me great, you know, and I think like, that is a, like, great, perfect, come in. And I'll tell you, it's fine. I feel I'm sure you feel the same, like you're happy to do imaging on people to find out it's a normal breast lump, you know, exactly. It's like, if it's going to make you sleep at night, you know, your body best. So if it doesn't feel right to you, bring it to the attention of your doctor, and they should do a physical exam. And again, if they say it's okay, but you still need it, I think it's okay to say, I really feel more comfortable if we did imaging because on imaging, you know, if you're under 30, we start with an ultrasound. If you're over 30, we do a mammogram and an ultrasound, but usually we could tell if it's anything to worry about, you know, maybe it's, you know, or it could be either if if it's nothing or if it needs a biopsy and even still, if it needs a biopsy, it still may not be breast cancer, but just knowing and having the peace of mind is important. No, I love that so much because I think especially as, young women, you know, we're not, right, we're not supposed to get breast cancer, right. the odds are not there, you know, I they're not. And so I think sometimes when that happens, and people feel mm-hmm. things, 
they feel like they might be dismissed. They feel like they shouldn't go in. They feel like people don't take them seriously or whatever it is. And I, I don't know. I, I have to say I've kind of been surprised on the patient side of it about how much advocacy it takes as a patient. Yeah. And on the one hand, that makes me sad. You know, I get a little bit stuck in it. But really what I've taken from it is, OK, this is the reality of our healthcare, yeah. right? We do. We advocate for ourselves. We feel things that feel weird. We trust our gut. Yeah. You follow up. So I love that advice so much because I think a lot of people would stop like, OK, right. you know, I'm told it's nothing. Yeah. But then we hear the stories where, unfortunately, that's not true. So yeah. I, I really, really appreciate that. I, advice. I hear lots of stories of like my doctor told me it's a clogged duct and didn't image it. And then, you know, a few months later, it was breast cancer. So don't if you if you feel like your provider is dismissing your symptoms, like that's how I feel. Yeah, that's exactly right. what I tell people. Yeah, I, I think say that. I know so after too. I started, so I started like promoting the self breast exam. I I do feel it on the first. I think it's catchy. I love that campaign. Love it. It's easy to remember. Mm -hmm. And since doing that for the past year and a half, I've had four people in my 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 community message me that they found their own breast cancer. All friends, young women young women. That's amazing. It that oh, has got to yeah. feel so good knowing that what you are doing is tangibly actually changing people's lives. It makes me feel good, but it also makes me feel bad because I'm like, how many people are not doing their self-breast yeah. exam that should? It also brings up the point in that mammography is not perfect, mm -hmm. especially in women with dense breast tissue. So there really is a role for the annual mammogram and then feeling yourself you know, in between every month and just make sure everything feels kosher. Can I ask yeah. you a question when we're talking about mammography not being perfect? Because this is something that I run into a lot with people is because I'm so happy that we're talking about breast density, right? right? There's no question that is an important thing to talk about, but it's complicated mm -hmm. because most young women have dense breasts, right? So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, you know, I get asked a lot if you are in your late 30s, in your 40s, you're told you have dense breasts, you're already getting 3D mammograms, which we do standardly at our center. Is there anything else people with quote unquote average risk, but dense breasts in our young should be doing from a screening standpoint? Personally, I think that we should be adding on survey breast ultrasound, you know, especially even at the baseline is a great place to do it because we, you know, the breast, a 40 year old walking in average risk who's never had you know, um, an imaging, you are going to assume they're dense, mm -hmm. probably 50% of women are dense. So you're going to assume and it's more likely when you're younger. So assume she has dense breast tissue. I think it's a great baseline to just get get a lay of the land and make sure everything's okay. I mean, let's talk a little bit about dense breast tissue for the listeners. So breasts are composed of fat and fibroglandular tissue. So the more fibroglandular tissue you have, the more dense breast the more dense your breasts are and the more white they appear on mammogram. And the problem is that breast cancers are also white. So there's a small breast cancer that's hiding behind a small white breast cancer that's hiding behind dense white tissue. It can be really hard to see, you know, 3d mammography has made it better, but it's still, it's not as sensitive as someone who has fatty or scattered breasts. And that's really where the supplemental ultrasound and MRI comes. Um, you know, I think if you're like average to intermediate risk, I think, uh, there's great options like a survey breast ultrasound. Some places have contrast mammogram. Mm -hmm. uh, there's great options like a survey breast ultrasound. Some places have contrast mammogram. Some places have, you know, abbreviated MRI if that's your thing. But if you're over 20% lifetime risk of breast cancer, you're going to want to add a breast MRI as well every year. And I like to alternate every six months, like doing a mammogram in January and an MRI six months later. 
Usually for a survey ultrasound, I like to do it at the same time though, as a, man, as a, as a mammogram. Again. Okay. Yeah, no, that's really helpful because when people ask me, and I mean, I, I personally get uh, breast MRIs myself and um, once a year yeah. and, you know, I've settled into them, <laughs> not the most fun things in the world, yeah. but I would say, I'm not sure it's something that, you know, with the potential for false positives, it does feel like a complicated discussion to not send kind of everyone who might not hit that 20% risk but does have dense breasts. So I like that idea of an ultrasound so much, because at least that's a less invasive thing, you know, to go through for people. Right. Here's the downside of screening breast ultrasound. And this is a, the downside of any screening test is that we might find something that is not cancer, but it warrants either a biopsy mm-hmm. or follow-up. And that's kind of the reasons that societies cite not to do it. But I mean, I think that that's very paternalistic approach, right? It's like give the woman the information and let them decide if they're willing to undergo the additional screening and testing. So I would say if you are a proactive patient who has dense breast tissue and is, you know, motivated to find breast cancer at the earliest stage, then, you know, a mammogram with supplemental ultrasound or MRI, depending on your risk factors, makes sense. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's super helpful. Okay, <laughs> I, will, I will use that in my practice next yeah. week. Thank you. We, we can quote that. We'll, 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 I will. Um, speaking of radiologists, I'm friends with Heather Greenwood, Dr. Heather Greenwood. Oh, I love Heather. Oh, I love that you guys are friends. She's amazing. Yeah. I was uh, just loving her picture of her running for our, we're doing this um, mag team challenge thing right now. And she's uh-huh. running super pregnant, which I love. I also ran pregnant uh, and it makes me so happy when I see people doing that. She actually was like on three episodes ago. We talked about oh, on an episode called Mama Knows Breath because her mom passed away from breast cancer yeah. in her thirties. And she's really, it's, She's so inspiring. She really cares. Yeah, she's amazing. Oh, I yeah. love that. I'm about to, I'm going to yeah. listen today. That's, That's incredible. It's a good one. All right. I know you have to go to go get back to work, but any, what's your best advice for someone who is newly diagnosed with breast cancer? I think the biggest thing I say to people is to give yourself the gift of time. Um, because the reality is like, we hear the words, I've been there, we hear the words breast cancer, and all we want to do is kind of get forward, move on, get treated and figure it out. But the reality is for most breast cancers, it's actually not a medical emergency. We have time to figure out our treatment to get to know options, go get that second, that third opinion, be involved in communities like the breasties, like we talked about to hear about other options. Because the thing that really is so hard to hear is people who rush into something they didn't know what the potential repercussions were. They didn't think through everything. They didn't know maybe they should have treatment first to shrink a tumor before going on to surgery. And so I think in my mind, if you can just take a deep breath, know that you do have some time to learn about your options and feel really informed because there's no question the people that know more and are more informed going into treatment do better. And we see that day in and day out. So that would definitely for me like be, I mean, I took, I tell people this, I share this. I took six weeks for my diagnosis to when I went to surgery. And I know that that's on the longer side, but I knew medically it was a safe thing to do. And that's what I needed to get that to work into my life, to figure out what I wanted to get my team together. I think that's such good advice. Like, I think that a lot of times when I give the diagnosis, the urgency is like, I want it out tomorrow. Exactly. And and if, it, if I don't get it out tomorrow, it's going to spread. You know, and I understand that fear, but that's just not what happens, right? Right, and but it takes right. that reassurance, right? People hear right. it again. It's so scary. You assume you have cancer. It's already spread already. And I do think putting it in that context um, is so huge because it's the rest of your life. You know, that's the thing. Unfortunately, we can't undo some of these things. And so I, I love when people give themselves that gift. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you one more thing because when you were, you were diagnosed when you were 37, did you have to go through any fertility uh, preservation or anything like that? 
Yeah. So I actually was in a place where I'd already had my kids pretty early. Um, but I, I have to say, I love that you brought that up um, mm-hmm. because it's something that I think gets overlooked. And there are so many yeah. things about being diagnosed young that are, are different. But in my mind, fertility is one of the biggest ones and the challenges that just adds one whole other layer on top of it. Oh, 100%. Especially these young women that aren't don't have partners and they're having to decide, you know, they're just they just got diagnosed with breast cancer and they're having to decide their reproductive future when they, you know, right. No, I mean that on top of it. And I think a lot of these issues are so complicated, right? It's nerve. So when I talk about breast sensation, you know, it turns out that talking Mm -hmm. about sensation and the role it plays in sexuality and intimacy and how we feel about our breasts, you know, all of these are really taboo subjects still in our community. So you think it's hard enough to be talking about breast cancer, you know, but for me, I really try to be very honest when I talk about it. Like I cared how my breasts were going to look and I cared how they were going to feel. And, and I think that a lot of times we just, we don't talk about those things because in our culture, it's still a very scary topic to talk about women's breasts, you know, Um, but fertility, as you said, it's just one more layer that's so challenging for Mm -hmm. people on top of all the other challenging things you have to think about. No taboo topics here. I'm going to be talking no. about that in a few episodes. Mom, you might not want to tune in for that one. Fantastic. I'm so glad. More and more of that. I mean, like uh, every every episode should have some discussion about all this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have enjoyed talking to you so much. Me too. This is fantastic. You are a blessing. I love seeing you all around and oh. making the rounds for breast cancer. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I love that you do this. This is incredible. So thank, thank you. Thank you. you for having me and putting all this information out. Oh, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation or learned something new, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and help spread the word. If you tell me you did, I'll give you a big virtual smoocheroo. And of course, make sure you follow me across all social media platforms at The Booby Docs for more of the breast information. And a huge thank you to my podcast producer, Christian Cuveta, an amazing medical student who also wrote and produced the music for the show. Take it away, Christian. Christian.